Welcome to the Air Control and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chargers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society at the University of Utah or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so today I'm at the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon's annual meeting in Atlanta, and I invited a few speakers to talk on the podcast about the work they presented at the meeting. And for each of these little mini episodes, which we'll make into one big episode, I've been fortunate enough to be joined by a guest co-host. I um, hope you'll enjoy these, and they'll give you just a taste of all the great work being done by the members that are being pre- members of our society that's being presented at our meeting. So I'm sitting here today with uh, Dr. Stephanie Mew of Henry Ford in Detroit, who's going to talk to us about her study, Cemented versus Cementless Reverse Torsional Arthroplasty for Approximately More Fractures in the Elderly, a multi-center retrospective cohort study. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Peter. And joining us today's co-host is uh, Dr. Vanessa Sabazian at um, Atlantis Orthopedics in Florida. Vanny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Stephanie, can you tell us just kind of a brief summary of your study? Sure. So what I did is that... I reached out to about seven to eight different uh, level one, level two trauma centers that take care of proximal humerus fractures. And we retrospectively reviewed from 2012 to 2020 our proximal humerus fractures. Now these centers uh, treat these proximal humerus fractures for reverse differently. Some do cemented, some do uncemented. So I was curious, you know, because of the trends of reverses going more and more towards cementless, that's pretty much the gold standard now. Can we do that for reverse fractures? There's always a concern about tuberosity healing, metaphyseal bone, and these osteoporotic people. So I was curious uh, whether or not cementless uh, fixation and the humerus would be appropriate for these patients. So um, basically, you know, we reached out to these centers, we collected the data, and uh, we're here to report our outcomes based on the, the information we gathered. And to our knowledge, it's the largest cohort uh, in terms of reported data. How many patients did you have? 217. Wow, so that's a big cohort. Yes. And then um, for those 217, did you exclude certain patients, like with proximal, you know, distal extension or? So, um, you know, uh, we we really just le- uh, left it with proximal humerus fractures, three to four part fractures that required reverse uh, total shoulder, no revisions. So these were not for malunions or non-unions. These were really for more acute fractures. Um, and we didn't necessarily uh, uh, exclude distal extensions uh, into the humeral shaft because we felt that still, if they're using it for reverse shoulder arthroplasty, if if they're going to use it for cemented or cemented, we would like to know what the outcomes were. How was your cohort d- divided? Um, just we basically uh, looked at the cement. How many people were in the cemented? So in the cemented, there were 78. In the uncemented, we had 139. Okay. And um, when you when you looked at that, were there characteristics between the, 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 the patients similar? Great question. So when we looked at the demographics, there's really no difference in terms of gender, race, uh, BMI, smoking status, which is obviously one of the concerns, So, and age. So overall, we didn't see much of a difference in the demographics. And what about surgeon preferences? Were there any particular sort of, if we looked at specific surgeons that always cemented versus uh, other surgeons that didn't? So you mean in terms of demographics or just, just in terms of the patient treatment algorithm? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, each of these sites probably, each of them were predominant one style, mm-hmm. you know. So um, the, there's a, about three or four centers that treat all their fractures at this point, majority of them uncemented. And then there's uh, other sites, mine being one of them, we treat them cemented. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's definitely surgeon preference in terms of the fixation. Now, before we get to the results, let's just hear. So, Bonnie, for your current reverse refractor, mm-hmm. what's your protocol? Cemented or cementless? I do cementless. 
What kind of yeah. stem do you use? So I try to find a metaphyseal fit stem. So I have changed my characteristics of, so for a primary reverse, I do a short stem, uncemented with proximal fit. And then for a, a fracture of a reverse, which I tend to do a lot of in Florida, I've, have, I've gone to more longer metaphyseal fit. Some of them that are separate and not an on-block stem. So they're modular in components, and I found that that also seems to improve my fixation. This is perfect because I've been cementing them. So now we have one person on each side. I wish I wish I could say I coordinated that, but it just happened. So tell us now, what what's the results? Who does better? So um, in terms of surgical time, as you can imagine, um, OR times more for cemented, just mm -hmm. for the cementing and securing. But in terms of intraoperative complications, we didn't see a difference. Overall complications, while there were more in the uncemented group postoperatively, did not reach significance. Function was similar, and but in terms of objective failure, in terms of revision rates, there was more in the cemented group, and that reached significance uh, compared to the uncemented group, actually. So can you tell us a little bit about those results? So when when were we looking at? What's the timeline? How far out? So that's great. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it's really short-term results, just because a lot of these fractures uh, were lost to follow-up, just the nature of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so in the cement cemented group, uh, the follow-up is about 10 months. Mm -hmm. And in the cement list group, it's about... Um, uh, it's about twice of that, so 16 months. Mm -hmm. And so. then when you looked at that, like, in terms of our, our short-term results, were you able, like, did you look at radiographic results too? Yeah, so we attempted to, obviously, mm -hmm. looking at this, but and we found a higher uh, radi radiolucency around the cemented group. Okay. Now tell us about tuberosity healing. I've been sometimes concerned that, like, cement gets in the interface between mm -hmm. my stem and my tuberosity or between the, the, between the shaft of the tuberosity and prevents it from healing. Did you see any differences there? So that's a great question. Unfortunately, that's something we didn't look at, but we are in the process of going back uh, and thinking about going back to see if we can gather that data because that's the more and more I'm looking at it, I think that's an important aspect of whether or not the cement, uh, you know, can play a role, whether or not the tuberosity heals. What do you think is driving your results? Like, what do you think causes the, the yeah, Why am I better? <laughs> I didn't say oh better. So we didn't Don't say better. Don't make me regret this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it, it's a hard question. You know, it, it could be cement technique. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think that uh, could be a, a, a big one. It could also be in terms of this is short-term follow-up, so we don't know how the uh, in-growth or on-growth, depending on the stem uh, that is used uh, fixation-wise. We just may not have seen the failures in, or loosening in, in that terms. Um, but, you know, when I do a cemented uh, stem, I tend to let them go faster, so maybe I shouldn't be doing that in these osteoporotic patients. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't... To be honest with you, I don't know why. Uh, I was a little surprised, to so be honest with you. can we ask a little more, like exploring that? What were the complications uh, when you talk about that? Because they said they were higher, but but right. maybe, maybe it's, what were the types? So um, in the uh, overall, you know, there were many, there were like 18 different complications, but the most common were periprostatic fracture, acromial fracture, you know, this, like I said, the stem loosening, and then we had actually two infections in the cemented group. All the other ones were a bit smaller in terms of uh, neuropraxia. Um, uh, I think there's like one superficial. There's a lot of ones, you know, in, in terms of complications. Now, obviously, this is this is always hard in a retrospective comparative study, you know, yes. um, because we 
do you think there could be some selection bias where patients with worse bone intraoperatively, the patient decide, the, the surgeon said, well, we should cement this one, the bone's not so good. So, so yeah. are we selecting out for the patients with osteoporosis by the study design? Yeah, so that's a, I mean, that's a great point. Um, certainly we could, um, but, but if, when we looked at the centers, they yeah. tended to, so they stayed, so by the surgeon centers, they stayed consistent. Mm -hmm. There were a few times where you would see some centers maybe fluctuate a little bit, but overall mm -hmm. they tended to stayed consistent with how their fixation technique was. One thing that I've seen since I kind of moved from a cemented to cementless sort of technique is, you know, you, you really worry about um, the type of implants you use and the sizing. And some of the options in some of the companies have not been as, um, in terms of implant sizing, have not been as vast. And so the, the, the solution is you just cement a smaller component in. Whereas when you have to get a metaphyseal fit or consider uncemented, you really have to really have a, a good fit, right? right? And so it forces you maybe to try to push that sizing, get the right fit. And I, I have changed my, my, even my implant selection based on that. And that, that has been a big thing. And then the second thing I've noticed too is a lot of the cemented stems have a much larger proximal um, uh, uh Body, body than a cement uncemented ones if you look and so I mean it's just a thought yeah I mean I mean that's a great point um, I know there's a couple companies out there that purposely had smaller bodies to allow for but you know fins to yes. allow for tuberosity fixation um, so that's one of the things we you know obviously we're not able to control for you know we know that there are some surgeons that just some you know used a primary stem and then they just used it mm -hmm. cementless mm -hmm. and they just felt that you know, with cerclage technique, they were able to get a good tuberosity fixation. Um, I mean, that's a great, uh, you know, point, but as you're aware, that's very hard to, yeah. to look at retrospectively. So now tell us, Stephanie, what, before you did this study, were you cementing or cementless? Cementing. Cementing. And what are you doing now? Still cementing. <laughs> okay. So, so, I, so the I, study I, didn't change your practice. Well, I have to admit, I mean, looking at this and, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to do cement list but the so the my problem is is that these are very osteoporotic you know often oft, osteoporotic bones so my concern is putting these huge huge stems into very very thin bone and you know um and whether or not they how well they'll do from these or if i'm going to create more problems by putting these fit and fill stems um you know i, I probably have to look more into these maybe more modular type of uh systems um but that's probably one of my big concerns still in terms of going uncemented in these osteoporotic uh, patients. And I mean, at least the one thing it seems like is technically they're both difficult and it sounds like people sort of have their preferences and seem to hold on to them, right? right. So, you know, as we continue to teach and train younger people, maybe sort of making sure that they're technically gifted in both types of fixation Absolutely. and understanding that's probably going to be important and it, to prevent complications. Maybe you could provide us, Manny. I mean, you're, so you're using a cementless technique. It sounds mm -hmm. like there are some advantages to it. Maybe the data suggests there is a slight advantage in mm -hmm. terms of complication rate. What are, what are some technical pros to getting that done? Well, you know, I think that understanding your system is important. Um, I think, you know, the preparation, as Stephanie puts on, I mean, interoperatively, I mean, these are bad bone patients, right? So, so just being a little bit more cognizant of your preparation and how you do it. Um, uh, and then uh, I think the modularity helps. I think not over-lateralizing has been another thing that I've really changed in my practice. 
that putting a lot of tension on the coffin tuberosities can cause a lot of failures. And I've kind of swung back the other way with fractures for reverses. And then I think, you know, one thing that, that Stephanie points out that we don't we really always talk about is like post-operative rehab and recovery and the importance of that. And so I've slowed them down a bit more um, post-operatively, not necessarily in terms of their moving, but in terms of strengthening and sort of pushing the envelope on that. So I've kind of modified my activities a little. Um, so slowed them down. How long are you putting them in the sling for? So I let them start moving. I do active assist range of motion, um, but I limit their external rotation and abduction. So I kind of let them do in a forward plane, some active assist, and then I don't start strengthening for six weeks. I, I'm a probably more aggressive than most people on rehab, and thus far I have been following, and I have a small cohort of fracture for reverses, and I have not seen any increased failures on the tuberosity side with some active assist range of motion. How about you? So reverse for fracture, how long for sling, how long for motion, how long for strengthening? So I uh, typically just let them be in a sling for about a week for comfort after the surgery. And then I get them to, into basically my standard rehab protocol for reverses, which is, you know, passive active assisted motion. They're out of the sling after a week. And then they uh, can start strengthening as soon as they have gained their full sort of active assisted motion and therapy. Because I, my, my belief is sort of I, I tell them they can be very strong, but it doesn't do them any good. They don't have the motion to be able to get to the, you know, the range that they want. So they can do isometrics, but true sort of active strengthening, I guess, would probably be about six, eight weeks. Any other final thoughts on this paper? I mean, this is a great study. Thank you for sharing this with us. No, I mean, I think you guys have brought up some great points. Uh, some of these things uh, I am looking at to, uh, you know, further look. And I think the impo most important things, right now the literature is quite sparse on looking at cemented mm -hmm. and uncemented. And I think with this cohort that we have, really the, the, the power of this will be to look at it long term, more of the five-year data, see what we're getting in terms of the results on that. Also, maybe, you know, future studies, what should we be looking at? What do you guys think in terms of this? Because to me, this is, this is a, it's a practice shift, right? A paradigm yeah. shift that we could make. What should we be looking at? Should we be doing registries, larger cohorts? Yeah, I definitely think re registries uh, are important. You know, the ASES has a, a registry. We could uh, get everyone to, you know, follow uh, that data. I think also... You know, in terms of we, we may have to be more aggressive in treating the osteoporosis. So, you know, recently I was in um, Asia for the traveling fellowship, and they're quite aggressive in treating mm -hmm. osteoporosis. They, they treat their patients even for routine reverses with parathyroid hormone mm -hmm. a lot of times. Um, so that is something well, it's interesting think, you say that because I think Gulata is doing a study that looks at nasal calcitonin to try to improve um, things. And, you know, perhaps we should be thinking a little beyond the outside the box of men. Right. Because I do think it's really critical for these patients that you have a colleague you work with mm -hmm. who treats metabolic bone disease. We, I refer all every single proximal fracture. I refer to um, a colleague I have who evaluates them and then evaluate, you know, determines Absolutely. whether it's calcitonin right. or parathyroid hormone or bisphosphates or whatever it is. Right. Um, but we, the, if if not necessarily for this fracture, but so that the next time they fall down, they don't break their head. Sure. No, and I um, agree that we do the same at our institution. We send them all to a bone health clinic. Mm -hmm. Really um, critical if we do that. And now. you know, I, I but I, I wonder as surgeons, should we be more aggressive in trying to also just treat mm -hmm. the current fracture yeah. Yeah. Um, on our own? Because a lot of these times we send these people to endocrinologists, right? And they're thinking along the endocrine line, or you know, more of like what's a BMD, yeah. well, how do you treat that? But in terms of bone healing, maybe yeah. we can take a different approach 
and be more aggressive in trying to treat what we, they probably have some form of osteoporosis, whether or not they hit, hit the critical numbers yeah. on their bone density. No, and you're very right because, you know, you know, in Europe there was a study done on hip fractures in a similar sort of fashion right. and looking at augmentation with PTH analogs and maybe a short course of that right. could enhance healing. And so maybe we need to be more of an active participant because when you send them to these bone clinics, the tendency is to wait till the fractures heal to do Correct. any treatments. And so perhaps that's the most critical time period is while they're healing. And maybe we as, you know, as a community need to take the wheel on that. I agree. Well, thank you both for coming on and talking about this. This is a great study. Again, congratulations, and um, we'll look forward to the next steps. Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Albert Lin of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Albert Lin is going to talk to us about um, his podium for tomorrow. Increased lateral humeral offset beyond anatomic is associated with diminished strength range of motion following reverse total arthroplasty. Welcome to the podcast, Albert. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And then as a guest host, we have uh, Dr. Amran Hatsidakis of Denver, Colorado, who's going to give us his insight into, into this. So welcome to the podcast, Armand. Thank you, Peter. So Albert, tell us, um, what is this study? What did you do? What did you find? Why did you do this? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I think the trend right now is towards lateral um, lateralization of reverses, right? Um, and there's some, you know, there's uh, studies demonstrating better range of motion, decreased capital notching, maybe lower complication rates. And the question everyone has is, what is the optimal lateralization, right? And I don't think anyone really truly understands that. It's based on a lot of on clinical studies, cadaveric studies. Uh, and so we, over the last year, have been doing an RO3 study um, with in vivo kinematics, actually looking at patients moving with their reverse implants and looking at surgical characteristics. And this is sort of an offshoot of that study. And so what we're able to do with this study is to be really, really detailed in sort of how we measure strength, um, how we measure um, humeral retroversion, and, um, and how we measure certain parameters that we don't I don't think really quite understand. And so um, that's sort of the premise of the study. Um, and, uh, you know, the Freddie Foo thought was always, uh, you know, anatomic um, or going towards anatomic was always um, better. And I think there's this idea, even though a reverse replacement isn't an anatomic replacement, there's this thought that maybe going towards anatomic is a, is a good thing rather than a bad thing. So that's the premise of it. Okay, so the, the idea here is lateral human offset retroversion. It sounds like you have a lot of data, and this is kind of a peek into just strength range of motion. Tell us what you found. Well, and so what we found is when we looked at so we measured strength using biodex, um, so in a couple of planes of motion. We actually measured uh, retroversion using 3D models, and so this is very accurate ways of measuring retroversion. I think that's one of the limitations you have in the current studies where you do the retroversion bar at the time of surgery, and you just assume that it's 20 degrees retroverted or 4 degrees, but you may not actually know. Uh, and so what we found is the more you deviate actually from what your native uh, offset is and what your native versions are, that actually the diminished strength and range of motion that you get. And it's actually a little bit counterintuitive. Our hypothesis actually going in was that we thought, hey, the more offset you're going to have, the better strength, the better range of motion, the more retroversion may the better external rotation. But actually, conversely, what we found was it's not really the absolute value that matters. It's maybe sort of the change from your native to, you know, the, uh, uh, to what your implant gives you. And so if you go way beyond lateralizing what your native is, we actually saw that it actually diminished your strength pretty significantly. Um, and in addition, you know, there's a sweet spot where your humor retroversion and lateral offset go, go towards native that actually improves your range of motion, which includes actually external rotation. Now, when you say native, you're saying pre-morbid anatomy, or are you saying... Right. Preoperative anatomy. 
preoperative anatomy, and so that's a great distinction. I think premortem anatomy is a little bit hard to know sometimes, right? And so what we can say is this is the, the difference between what their preoperative imaging was compared to their postoperative imaging. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times when you say, okay, we did five millimeters of lateralization, what exactly does that mean? We didn't, it doesn't necessarily mean you, you, you did five millimeters of lateralization beyond what their native is. We actually don't know what that reference point is. And so here we're trying to give a reference point to sort of how much global lateralization or how much change in lateralization and humor offset, or I mean, uh, humor retroversion uh, that you're giving this patient. So tell us, what, what um, based on this, your recommendation is you try and put the humerus at the same medial lateral position after the surgery as where you started before the surgery, you think? Yeah, I think, you know, I think this is this is on 30 patients because of sort of this, uh, you know, as part of a bigger study. So I think we probably need a little bit more data. But I think intuitively, I think what, what we're, what I am kind of theorizing or hypothesizing is that we should try to find some way that we can match what their you know, their native anatomy was before surgery. What are your thoughts, Armand? What, how much lateralization do we need? How does this alter your thinking? Well, Peter, uh, I think it's a, a very fascinating topic because we do tend to talk about these things in isolation. And um, as we know, there are multiple variables involved. There's uh, glenoid offset, uh, there's humeral offset, there's size of the glenosphere, uh, there is the distalization that occurs, and so when uh, I initially started doing research on this with uh, Pascal Boileau uh, about uh, 20 years ago, we, we looked at uh, uh, where is the center of the glenoid mm -hmm. rotation? Uh, does that matter? Does the medialized center of rotation of the glenoid, uh, the glenosphere, actually help your external rotation mm -hmm. because it's medial to more deltoid fibers? Mm -hmm. So I was curious, uh, Albert, when you looked at this, um, how did you, because the paper hasn't been presented yet, mm -hmm. how did you look at lateralization? Did you just look at the lateral cortex of the humerus? Did you look at the greater tuberosity? Did you look at the deltoid yeah. insertion? Maybe talk a little sure. more detail on that. Yeah, it's a great question because, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to measure global lateralization like you talked about. You can look at center of rotation. So how we measured it was we took, a, we took the CT scan preoperatively and we found the medial border of the coracoid and just took the most lateral aspect the humerus okay. um, and so and that was a reprodu reproducible measurement that and this has been prior described and so we we just use a very reproducible measurement for those 30 patients that were involved in our study could you then correlate fatty infiltration of the teres minor infraspinatus could you look at that as a way to look at external rotation as well yeah absolutely um, I believe uh, I'd have to look at our, our study in a little bit more detail but I don't believe that there was a uh, there was a tremendous skew towards um, these patients having increased fat infiltration in their external rotators. But that's, I think, a great point in terms of strength and power. Were there, were there different implants used? Uh, two different implants. So one implant was a 135, uh, I would say, inlay-ish type implant, mm -hmm. not completely inlay with flesh lay, I, I guess I would say. Or uh, mini onlay. Yeah, exactly. Mini, yeah. mini, mini, yeah, mini onlay. Yeah. And the other one was a 145 complete onlay implant. Now tell us, um, how does this, you know, this is, you've talked a lot about humeral offset on the lateral, medial lateral plane. How does this affect distalization? I mean, did, certainly I think those things are interlinked. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're, w did you look at that as well in your study or is that coming in the future? I think that's another parameter we're, we're, we're trying to look at. Um, you know, I think the difficult thing with doing these type of studies on reverses is that there's so many parameters and we try to 
you know, try to be as um, isolate them as much as possible to get clean data. Uh, but I think distillation is something we're looking at, like eccentricity um, uh, as well, and other parameters, tilt, glenosphere size, so on and so forth. Albert, I just have to comment on the retroversion question. I, I think it's a, a great, a great um, avenue of research you perform because it's a very difficult thing to mm -hmm. evaluate, as you've uh, noted. And I remember when the reverse was first coming to the United States, uh, guys like Anders Eklund, where our expert, experts mm -hmm. from Sweden came in and said, listen, if you want more internal rotation, you should uh, neutralize the version yeah. of your component, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it, what I've noticed in my practice over time, and I don't, I'd love to hear you both, both of your comments, is that if you change the retroversion too much yeah. from anatomic, it changes the stability profile, yeah. changes the ability to reduce the implant. Uh, and uh, the other thing I've noticed in my own practice, because I believe in the anatomic version, which you were asking about earlier, uh, is that um, it seems like, for my cases, the retroversion may be 45 degrees in some cases, or 50 even, mm -hmm. because as we know, there's a large physiologic difference yep. in different patients. And what I found, at least uh, in, in my uh, personal experience, is that if you, we have a little bit larger glenosphere, not too lateralized, and respect the native version, mm -hmm. not only is the external rotation better, at the end of the procedure, the external rotation is good, the subscapularis can be repaired, mm -hmm. but functionally, they regain their internal rotation as well. Yeah. So I don't know if you have any comments uh, from your study. I know that's not the focus of it, but sure. do you have any additional investigations that are looking at internal rotation? I mean, I think that comment is actually dead on. I, I think um, it always, you know, when I trained, and I, you know, and I'm not sure with, with you, Peter. When I trained, we were we were taught to put the re retroversion in around neutral and 10 degrees, and it always looks so far off from the anatomy, um, and it was always a very strange cut. And you do this cut, and I, I completely agree. I think it changes the stability profile. So it thinks it changes the range of motion profile, and and I think what's interesting is that we base our retroversion on these bars. We literally just line it up to the forearm, but it may actually have no. It actually that 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 forearm bar actually may have no um, real bearing as a real epicondylar access, and in fact, it most likely doesn't. And so we're we're judging these retroversions based on a, on a and we're so specific with everything else. Our pre-op plans on a glenoid, completely expe uh, very specific 3D planning, etc. And then yet we go to put our uh, our humeral implant in, and we use a, a forearm bar to match it parallel. And who knows what version you're actually really putting it in? But I. My, per my personal feeling, I, I completely agree with you. I think if you put it um, a little bit closer to the normal version, I think you get both internal and external rotation benefits. It's super interesting. I, mean, I think this is a, it's a great study. We've tried to do some of this similar work at Utah. It's, hu it's hugely challenging work to do this kind of 3D analysis, but it's so beneficial. So congratulations to you for all this work. What are the next steps? So where, where are you going to take your study findings from here? Yeah, I mean, I think the the next step really, I mean, when we started this RO3 grant, it was a, a small study just to look at patients who actually had uh, the implants in already. So they, they were patients who had, you know, had uh, implants in for a number of years. And we just looked, we tried to get a wide distribution of variables just to see, hey, what are we going to find when you look at it in in vivo analysis? I think the next step here is then to take this data, and if we really strongly believe in this, okay, you know, maybe we want to reproduce lateralization to be closer to our anatomics or retroversion closer to anatomic. Really, the next step would be to use that intervention, I think, and then to really follow that in a prospective way. Uh, I think that's sort of uh, what our goal would be with more number of patients using the data and affecting our, our surgical techniques. Well, I think this is great work. Um, certainly, it 
for me, this is another brick in the wall being built, you know, that supports the anatomic reverse torsoarthroplasty. And then I think that that's, we're getting away from maybe reverse anatomy in the right answer to anatomy being the right answer. What are your thoughts, Armand? So how does this affect your thoughts? Is this what you were already doing? Did you already know this? I wouldn't say I already knew it, Peter, but uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. And it seems to me my clinical practice, something that I've gravitated towards is more the anatomic uh, positioning. The, the one thing I think uh, would be very interesting is that we have two distinct populations of reverses that we yeah. have at this point. Mm -hmm. We have people who are traditional rotator cuff arthropathy. They may have no subscap, supra, infra. They have little teres attached. Yeah. And then we have the population of people who have a pretty good rotator cuff, but their glenoid's not uh, sufficient to support anatomic prosthesis. So I think it would be fascinating to look at those two different populations because yeah, I, I suspect we will have to do slightly different positioning, maybe a little more lateralization in the deficient patients. Right. Uh, but whereas in an anatomic patient, respect the anatomy, get a little bit of lateralization, make sure the glenosphere is big enough to get an arc of rotation. Yeah. Probably good enough in a, in a truly anatomic shoulder but with a severe B2 or B3 glenoid. In our rotator cuff deficient shoulders, I think that's going to be very fascinating, your, your work, because that to me seems to be the big trade-off patient. Okay, are you shooting for elevation? Yeah. If you have elevation in the absence of functional external rotation, yeah. and you're relying on the teres minor, which is there, right. but then you change the mechanics such that they lose external rotation, which did happen in the early days for sure. reverses. Right. The patients would say, I could eat before surgery, and now I can't yeah. because of the changes in mechanics. So to me, Peter, that's where uh, it will be really fascinating to see the two populations and see what recommendations will, how the recommendations will be different, Albert, from your future Very studies great point. and yours, Peter. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a great point that we needed to specifically understand the role of the infra in the reverse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and how does it, if it's absent, how does that change the way that we do the surgery? And that's not about the bone. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The soft tissue tensioning. Right. Right. I wanted to ask you guys a quick question too. So, you know, um, how do you think this might play a role in sort of our pre-op planning? Right. So we, we have a lot of good glenoid planning. We have a lot of good... Um, we have, we're starting to develop some, you know, center of rotation type planning, you know, on our softwares that I think most of us use. You know, why why do you think that there's no humoral planning? And because I think that probably is an, an important thing. I I totally agree with you, and I think even beyond that, though, you can make a plan, but then how accurately are you executing it? Yeah, that's my idea. Yeah. We yeah. we have that on the glenoid now, I and mean, we have a lot on the glenoid. People make guides. Yeah. There are systems for navigation. There are no current humoral navigation systems. So, um, is that coming in the future? Will that affect our outcomes? Do we need to do that? I don't know. Yeah. But um, I I do think we're going to see that, um, and I think we're we may see that makes a difference. I don't. And we'll see. What do you think? Yeah, I agree totally, Peter. I think it's a great question, Albert. And I do think that that's possibly where robotics will enter our conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, because intraoperative evaluation of the bone uh, via complex uh, computer software, uh, comparing x-rays, CT, intraoperative markings on the humerus, mm -hmm. and then being able to execute that via robot and then being able to actually have some something beyond ourselves evaluate the bone. Because I think for as far as uh, evaluation goes, the human a way to evaluate a humerus and how well we cut it and yeah. how much we cut, 
that I think that may be flawed enough that we need a little help from our. Well, if I'm you, I don't think I need that. You know, <laughs> but I'm me, so I think I need the. Uh, it's, it's, I, I think the same the guidance, thing. Exactly. You know? I need the guide. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you both for coming on. This is great work um, that you're doing, um, and congratulations on it. Thank you again for uh, your time, Armand, and um, we'll Peter. look forward to seeing what you accomplish in the future here. Thanks so much, Peter. Great work, Albert. Thanks very much. So I'm here with Dr. Philippe Collant of uh, France, who's the current CESIC president, who's going to talk to us about his study, Relationship Between Speed of Recovery, Range of Motion, and Rotator Cuff Healing, a study of 1,154 consecutive arthroscopic Swiss repairs. Dr. Collant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, thank you so much. And we, we have two guest hosts um, joining us, uh, staying over from our last uh, podcast. We have Dr. Uh, Albert Lin as well as uh, Dr. Armand Hatsidakis. So we have plenty of discussants here. So let's start, Dr. Cullen, tell us a, just a, a, a brief summary of what you found. What did you do this study for? What did you find? So um, I, I have a huge database. Uh, I have the opportunity, and I'm lucky for that, to have the possibility to follow up all my patients. Uh, during at uh, six weeks, three months, six months, one year, two years, five years, and ten years. Uh, his, everything is organized like that in my institution, and we can make um, an <coughs> ultrasound examination at six months for everybody. Uh, so that's why I have this database. And I, 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 was, I thought in the past, and I wanted, in fact, uh, to have speed recovery. Because when you teach physios and when you, and everything, it, we, we move from something was very, very difficult for the patient with, with a, 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 a huge brace and something like that to almost nothing. And everybody went in this way. So I just wanted to check if it was okay or not. So regarding what I said previously, I have, a lo I have a huge database, so I wanted to have at least 1,000 cases to, to, to know if it was good or not. And uh, I definitely thought that it was a good way to go. I thought that. It was a belief. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, uh, because I, I've, read, I, I've, I've, I've read from the literature that uh, it's good to to move uh, as quick as possible mm -hmm. in order to improve the quality of the, tendon, of the tendon. And unfortunately, I was totally wrong. <laughs> so you had thought that this accelerated recovery was going to be a, to the benefit of the patient. And then what did you actually find? I found that uh, if you ask, okay, so previously, it is very, very important for me to clarify this. Uh, a correlation is not a cause. Mm -hmm. Definitely not. Mm -hmm. We often make this make this mistake. So what I can share with you, with all my colleagues, is the fact that I observe something mm -hmm. which is not going in this in the way of the best healing if you move very quickly. But is it really correlated? Is it really the cause? I just don't know. Mm -hmm. Is it clear? Absolutely. So, so you found a. It's unclear if the speed of recovery is the cause of the the failure in healing. But what you found, it sounds like, is that 
the patients who had a quicker return of their range of motion had a lower healing rate. Exactly. If you have, if it was absolutely clear uh, with all the statistics, e even the multivariate analysis, uh, the fact that the recovery of forward flexion and external rotation at six weeks was highly better in a non-healed group compared to the healed group. Now tell us, do you, um, this may be hard, but do you think that's the patient moving more quickly? Did you change your protocol during this time period? Do you think that's a, that's a scar tissue formation biologic phenomenon? Where does that come from? So uh, what I can say, I've changed nothing. Okay. It was same patient, mm -hmm. uh, fatty, no fatty infiltration, mm -hmm. PAT1, no retraction. So in other words, easy, easy isolated supraspinatus there. Right. So it's a 20 or 30 minutes one that you have in your OR and you don't really think about it. Right, right. Okay. So, so it was exactly the same patient, same surgeon, double row, and uh, exactly the same uh, protocol, uh, post-op protocol, because I have the chance to work, uh, not now, because now I work in Paris, but in the past I used to work in the small city, and all the rehabilitation was done in my, around close to me. So it was the same physio, everything was the same. Philippe, tell us about that physio. What is your usual protocol in rehabbing? Uh, arthroscopic repair of a very fixable smaller tear as you described. What Can you go through the first week, the first three weeks, six weeks? Sure. Please tell us the protocol. So it's always the same. Uh, so we have a sling, abduction sling for uh, four weeks. How many degrees of abduction? 20. Okay. 20 degrees abduction sling, four weeks. Uh, we start rehabilitation immediately with what we call self-rehabilitation. They move by themselves, like that. So active-assistive, active basically assisted. is showing for, the, for those yes. listening on the podcast, grabbing your own hand and lifting it forward, kind exactly. of an active-assistive yes. type of uh, exercise, as we would call most likely, right guys? Yes, so they do that three times a day, and then they have only three appointments with the physio every week. So the physio just check if everything is okay, uh, normally, the goal is to recover all active assisted range of motion at three months. Mm -hmm. When we have this, we start uh, to reinforce the tendon and everything until up to six months. So it's very simple protocol, in fact. Uh, so I'm sorry, just so I understand, uh, we understand this. Uh, so three months, Philippe, do they do active motion at three months? Yes. No earlier than three months. No it's earlier. active assistive until three months. Yes. And then when do they start resistive work? Strengthening via bands, uh, isometrics, or weights? Nothing, be nothing before three months. But they can start all those things at three months if they have full motion. Exactly. Okay. So the, 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 the key point for me, it's all passive range of motion. Because most of the time, it's the most important mistake uh, which is done by the physio. They want to do something. Yes. They want to do something, especially with, with the patient who are not doing well. Yeah. And then they start uh, to reinforce the tendon, to reinforce the muscle and everything at three months, even if they don't have full passive range of motion. And it's a big mistake. Yeah. Do you think, you know, this is a pretty, um, uh, you know, everyone's protocols are varied, right? And this is a pretty uh, quick protocol, I think, to get things moving. 
do, do you think there's any harm in not moving a patient for four weeks in the sling? Probably. I, I should, regarding my results, uh, I agree that I should probably go in this way. Um, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they are going to be very stiff. Or, um, I don't know. But, but probably, probably, we, we, I think it would probably be too quick, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify when you did the ultrasounds, all six months? Felix? Six months. I, I thought Ionati's work was very interesting in that basically the way I summarize this for patients is I tell them, listen, be careful with your repair for the first six months because half the people who re-tear their cuffs tear it between months zero and three, which is the time with, which makes some sense. Mm -hmm. But it also makes sense that people would protect at that time. People use their common sense. They say, I just had surgery. I'm going to be careful. Mm -hmm. the, the real interesting thing to me about his work is between months three and six is where the other half of the ruptures occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I warn people about because if you look at some of Gerber's work, Alberto Schneeberger, Christian Gerber's work 20 years ago, when they looked at sheep, first of all, none of these sheep's rotator cuff wanted to heal if you just let a sheep lift their life. You had to cement a ball to their hoof <laughs> to get any of their cuffs to heal. Uh, but secondly, it was interesting that this, the repair of the strength was only 50% tensile strength, even at three months. So I tell patients that between months three and six. So do you think maybe, Philippe, uh, with all of our protocols, we're battling nature to some extent, that, that we, are, we are not respecting nature's speed of healing uh, with trying to be too fast? Um, I don't know if ships it's comparable to humans. Right. We haven't done those studies in humans. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they are strange animals. Yeah, that is true. The, even if you... Do nothing, sometimes they heal. Right. That's strange. So perhaps we want to compare something which is not comparable. That's a good point. Well, what do you think? How long does it take a human tendon? If you had to guess, when is a human tendon at 80% tensile strength after rotator cuff repair? What would you guess? What I would guess? 80% tensile strength, just how much it will hold. It holds 80% of a normal tendon. I don't know. That's the question, isn't it? What do you think, Peter? I mean, I, I agree that it's really hard to know how comparable sheep data is to human data, but I think the closest you can get is the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the would be to use, a, to use an ape, to use a, a monkey. There's only, as far as I know, a single chimpanzee study that looked at histology, and it suggests that it, at three months it's not healed. The tendon is just laying on top of the bone, um, and, and that you need to wait until four and a half to six months to really see restoration of the emphasis, restoration of that nice transition from bone to calcified cartilage to and um, what I think is so interesting about this data is that you, you you were the same surgeon the same physios the same protocol exact and and we have some patients that heal and some patients that don't and that there's this clean correlation between the patients who have more range of motion early on so I wonder are there certain patients that have a more robust scar tissue response? Those patients also get stiffer. Is that an inflammatory thing? Do we need to worry about giving some, is there some way we could activate that biology? Uh, or, or is there some way we could capture that to better understand it? So what, what are the next steps? What do we do, what do you do from here? So in this study, we showed as well, as well that um, two, two other interesting things. So, so the other, one, the second one is uh, the fact that patients with pain 
during the day healed better than the others. In other words, if you are a bit painful during the first six months, it's probably good. <laughs> Which is very interesting for us mm -hmm. because you can say that to your patient. You're painful, good news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Which is good. <laughs> Second things, uh, which was very interesting for me, it's the fact that um, um, I can understand more now. Uh, sometimes the patients are doing very well at six months, but they complain a bit about internal rotation. You've seen that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. I've seen mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um. then it's, it was really co correlated with healing. If you have a heel tendon, you have less internal rotation at six months. Mm -hmm. I was very happy to, to check that. And I'm very happy to explain to my patient, don't worry, it's good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so I think we cannot tell, we, we cannot tell more than, than, than what it is. Mm -hmm. We just try to, I try to, to see, to observe a maximum of patients. And I try to see, okay, I've seen two or three things. Uh, I'm going to share that with my, with my colleagues. But I don't try to explain or go back to the biology. And I think it's a cognitive bias to try to find cause. Mm -hmm. I don't do anymore. So maybe the real value of this data is to advise our patients, this thing that you think is bad is good, uh, and this is good for your long term. Let me ask you this, though. You you'd presented some prior data about correlation between range of motion at three to six months and then range of motion later on down the road. So you mentioned early on that you have data at not just six months, but also one year, two year, five year, ten year. What do you think this portends for the long term? So the patient has a little more stiffness early on. Does that persist? Does that improve? Uh, at two years, everybody's happy. <laughs> you know, it's just a matter of time. Got it. Philippe, uh, Peter and I were talking a little bit um, uh, earlier about sort of the American um, physical therapists who talk to, who tell our patients if they're a little bit stiff at six weeks or three months that they're at risk of developing a frozen shoulder. And mm -hmm. it's often a very long conversation to say you're, you're okay and this is maybe a good thing. What is your, you know, do you have the same experience? No, that's exactly what you said previously. I think that um, perhaps if you, you, we could make this mistake. We could say, okay, uh, we've shown that uh, if you recover too quickly, uh, your rate of healing is lower, so we are going to uh, immobilize you during six weeks. Yeah. But perhaps we will have a lot of frozen shoulder. Maybe. That's possible. Yeah. That's possible. And I think that there is another mistake. What is our goal? To have a heel tendon or a happy patient. <laughs> very true. And I think I think a lot of rotator cuff uh, outcomes, right, or you have to be very careful about what you're looking at. Exactly. Or because if you look at your patient, the, yeah. even if, if you have a rotator, they're happy, yeah. very happy. So I think that now what I do, what I've, but it's absolutely not scientific. If it's a young patient, I really want, my goal is really, really, really the healing of the tendon. So you'll probably be a bit slower because this is my goal. If it's a 70 years old patient, my goal is more um, pain and function. 
I'm less concerned about the, the healing. So that's why probably I, will, I, I, I keep the same protocol because I don't want to have a frozen shoulder at 70 or 75 years old. Mm -hmm. It's a disaster in their life. Yeah. And because they want to play golf, they want to, it's, they don't have so many years. <laughs> so so I, I try to adapt myself, uh, to adapt to, to each patient. But you keep the same protocol, but just little things you say to the patient, or yeah. how, how do you do that in a practical sense? In practical sense, uh, on the on 45 years old, isolated suprater, I will probably delay the, the, the rehabilitation at three weeks. But it's totally the opposite of what we thought. Mm -hmm. We yeah. thought he was young, good tendon, yeah. and we can move forward quick, quicker. Yeah. But probably not. Any other final thoughts? I just had one last question, which I don't know if I heard the answer to. Did you look at the um, PROs, the patient-reported outcomes, and correlate to tendon integrity, speed of recovery? Did you see anything uh, useful there, Philippe? A lot of data suggests that the patient-reported outcomes are pretty much the same. It depends which one you use. If you use constant score and there's strength involved, of course, a little strength, less strength in the non-healed tendons. But most other patient-reported outcomes are pretty good, whether the tendon's healed or not. Yes. Did you notice anything uh, useful in your uh, large group of patients? No, that, uh, not yet. Us? Not yet. I, I definitely believe in PROMS. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it's probably subjective, but it's reported by the patient. Mm -hmm. So it's perfect because the patient has the right to be subjective. Mm -hmm. Because it's That's why we're doing it. Yeah. Right. That's perfect, in fact, right. because it, we are probably not more objective with the with the with a good score like like SES score or constant score, because when we see the difference between one observer to the other one and everything, so I, I definitely like the prompts. Um, I think that what I what I've learned from my studies is the fact that at two years it's okay, at five years it's okay, at ten years it's not. It, between healed and non healed dependent. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I'll Certainly that reflects Moosemeyer's data as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely. Well, congratulations to you for this study as well as all the other phenomenal studies you've done on the cuff and others. I mean, it's a, uh, it's a real honor to have you on the podcast, and I'm um, really thankful you were able to come here and talk to us about this study. So thank you. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to share with my, my friend uh, from United States. It's a big um, shoulder. It's an it's a amazing family. Mm -hmm. And we, we get along very well, in fact, and I'm very happy about that. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm here with Dr. Eric Ketty and Joseph Ionati of the Cleveland Clinic, and they're here to talk to us about their study, Tendon Retraction After Rotator Cuff Repair and Its Relationship with Postoperative Repair Integrity. Cleveland Clinic team, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thank you for having us. And joining us as co-host um, to discuss the study is, um, Oki, okay, it's Anak Wenzi, might I pronounce it correctly? That's correct. Um, of Duke. Oki, okay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So I know your team has been working on this for a long time. So tell us um, what led you to study this and what you found. Well, I'll tell you the origin of the original study and the concept was related to some of the animal rotator cuff surgery that we did. Uh, and in the sheep model and the dog model, unlike what we think of human models, when the tendon repair fails, it fills in with tissue. Um, in fact, it almost always does because in a 
immediate weight-bearing animal after cuff repair, it'd be hard to believe that those cuff repairs stay intact. And it was always my assumption, and this dates back now 15, 20 years ago, that that would never happen in the human being because in the animal, it's extra articular, the cuff, much like the MCL, and in the human, it's intra-articular in the sense that you got synovial fluid and said, well, if the cuff fails, there's always going to be a defect. And, you know, Kathy and I, uh, Kathy Derwin, um, said, well, how do we know that? You know, how, how could we measure that? Is there, you know, circumstances in which the tendon repair fails, but it fails in such a way that you get intervening tissue, which we eventually called failure with continuity. So that was the genesis of the first, you know, experiments that we did, so to, so to speak, experiments, you know, more precise measurements of how does the human rotator cuff heal, you know. And we assumed from the very, very beginning, it was an on or off switch. It either healed or it didn't heal and you had a, a gap, you had a synovial filled gap. And so that was the genesis of the original work, and then we try to figure out, well, how do you measure that? How do you measure retraction of the tendon? How do you compare retraction to, you know, soft tissue healing? Uh, so that was the original work, and as I said, it dates back probably 15, maybe more years ago. Um, so we, we came up with ideas around saying, well, how do you measure that? Well, you can measure tissue by MRI, but it's hard to measure retraction precisely unless you have some kind of marker. So well, first we started with metal markers, and then we went to metal beads, and then we went from metal beads to barium impregnated suture that you could put in the tendon. And then if you get a time zero uh, low-dose CT and you do 3D uh, imaging, you can measure the relationship of where you put the markers at time zero to the anchors, which are in the bone and presumably not going to move under except rare occasion. And now you can measure over time how those markers move from the anchors and where those uh, uh, markers are in relationship to the location of the tendon, where the tear was. And if you compare on the same day imaging by CT for the markers and MRI, which would give you what the tendon looks like in terms of thickness and integrity, then you can begin to understand the relationship between tendon retraction and um, what we ended up calling failure with continuity because we felt that, you know, the ideal circumstance would be the tendon stays where you put it and you get this normal muscle tendon length back, which was critically important to getting muscle function because we know the muscle tendon length correlates with the rehabilitation and the strength of the muscle. So we ended up calling what we observed some 10 plus years ago failure because we didn't think that was the right thing for, for this tendon to retract, but it was healing. So we fail, called it failure with continuity. Uh, but that was the original genesis. Okay, so you came up with this idea, barium impregnated sutures, low-dose CT, and then tell us in this study, who, who did you study, what did you find? Well, Eric, when I let Eric answer that, he's been integrally part of the, the study, the study design, the, the execution of the study. 
Yeah, so we did an initial pilot study of 13 patients now, maybe 10 years ago, where we looked at this initial concept using these metal beads that Joe talked about and kind of understood the surgical technique better and the challenges with trying to suture in these markers, particularly when they're beads, because it's not easy to do. And that led us to develop better techniques, and in particular this barium, barium impregnated suture, which you can basically pass through tissue and tie like any other suture. So that led to this much larger prospective study in which we've enrolled 121 patients with the goal to take them out to minimum two-year follow-up and hopefully even longer, uh, where we perform typical double-row rotator cuff repairs on repairable tears, supraspinatus, potentially into infraspinatus, and at the end of these surgeries, add these suture markers right at the just medial to the suture line of your medial anchors and medial sutures so that we can follow how these sutures move over time. And we've added different levels of markers based on the size of the tear. So a small tear might have two suture markers, a larger tear may have three or four suture markers. 121 patients, so this is a big group. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we've been fortunate through the work Joe and Kathy did to get NIH funding for this study, and that allowed us to really do this large-scale prospective study to be able to have this advanced imaging over the course of two years and really understand this phenomenon better. You know, so, this is, sorry, this is a quick question because this is really fascinating because I feel like right now we're getting to a point where we talk about what can heal and what can be repaired. And, you know, you would know from your vast experience, it feels like in the past, the ability to repair the tendon at time zero is what people considered most significant. You know, surgeons say, well, I can repair any tear. And now we're getting to a point where we're thinking about, well, what heals? Mm -hmm. So does this study, like, give you guys some sort of insight into, like, how we think about what tendon might heal versus what might not heal? Well, that we haven't got to the answer yet. Um, so, you know, our primary objective in this 121 patient study was to describe the gradations or the variations in healing and understand is there a correlation between tendon retraction, meaning the tendon pulling away from the bone, and gap formation, meaning what you'd call a sugaya four or five, where you'd say that's a full thickness tear, much like the tear that I repaired. Maybe smaller in size, maybe larger in size, but it's a gap in the tendon. And one of the first things we studied was uh, what is the difference between a sugaya one, two, and three, meaning, quote, healed, could be thin tissue, but healed, and a sugaya four and five. And the data clearly shows that the amount of retraction that occurs, first of all, all retraction kind of ends at six months. So whatever you hmm. typically have at six months. But there's a steady increase in the amount of retraction over that six-month period of time. Um, but that the tendons that don't heal or don't heal and ha have a gap clearly have up to about two centimeters on average of, of retraction, whereas it's about one centimeter uh, when they do heal, quote, Sugaya one, two, and three. Now, very interestingly, there's huge variation in the Sugaya one, two, and three where some of them do retract up to two centimeters, but they form this this tendon-like tissue, much like in this, we saw in all of the sheep and, and dog studies, um, where that happens 100% of the time. So in humans, it happens about 80% of the time, 
uh, and that 20% fail and have a gap. So the question is, well, what difference does it make? You know, is there a difference in outcome, uh, either short-term or longer-term? And that got us to the issue of saying, well, what, not necessarily what factors are in the, that variation in gap formation, but what is the clinical significance? And, you know, uh, Eric, again, I, I think is probably best suited, to, you know, to review that data. But we haven't gotten that far yet, it sounds like. Well, we've gotten far enough to know that Sugaya 4 and 5, with the large retraction, clearly is correlated with less shoulder strength by multiple measures of shoulder strength, comparing it to the opposite shoulder, comparing it to strength over time. What we were hoping to find, and we have not yet found, is do the patient-reported outcome scores vary based on either retraction or between Sugaya 1, 2, and 3 versus Sugaya 4 and 5. Now, the continuation of this study is to bring all of those patients back for five-year follow-up. So the assumption is that the quality of healing, meaning the more retraction you get and the thinner that tissue is in the intervening failure with continuity, has a consequence. We don't know that for sure, but that's our hypothesis and that that poor quality tissue might result in either recurrent tears with longer follow-up or uh, changes in their proms at five years versus two years. So all of those patients are coming back um, for further study. So we're bringing them back now for CT and MRI. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's very exciting about the study is the fact that we've got this cohort of patients, these Sagaya 1, 2s, and 3s, that's a large group. You know, we've got about a 20% failure rate, meaning Sagaya 4 and 5s, which means we've got this large cohort that have this spectrum of retraction. Like Joe said, they average about one centimeter of retraction, but it's a spectrum. So we have this ability to understand how that spectrum impacts outcome in terms of PROMs, strength measures, and we even are looking into the potential of how that impacts joint changes. You know, how does that impact muscle uh, changes over time, how does that impact cartilage and joint changes over time? What percentage of the patients have negligible retraction? So what percentage have maybe less than five about, millimeters about to zero? percent. So maybe 20% would be considered. What you would we, say, that's what I expected. When I operated on this patient, yeah. that was my goal, that this tendon is gonna stay pretty close to where you know I put yeah. it. And everybody expects it to pull away a little bit. You know, the sutures crimp and they stretch out a little bit and you get some, you know, viscoelasticity of the repair site. But, you know, you'd say that's probably two or three millimeters. Um, but, you know, when you start to see a centimeter or more, you start to say that's a different mechanism of healing than I was expecting. And that's the majority. You know, that, that is the more common mechanism of healing. And the question is, is does it have a consequence? You know, if you're operating on a 50-year-old you know, year old patient who's going to live 30 years, you know, what are the consequences not at two years, maybe not even at five years? Uh, but we are bringing them all back at five years. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting about this court, these are tears that all of us would say we can repair well. So these are uh, tears small, medium to large repairable tears that have the ability to be brought back to the tuberosity, to the lateral tuberosity for a double row repair. So these are not our yeah. tears 
where we think they're going to fail. These are the ones we think have the best chance to heal well, and we see this phenomenon even in these tears that, that we think we're repairing as good as we can. Yeah, the average tear size, again, there was a spectrum from, you know, one centimeter to five centimeters, but the vast majority were these two, two-and-a-half-centimeter yeah. tears where you'd say, this is a chip shot. You know, it's two anchors, maybe a tendon to tendon repair, you know, healthy people. You know, if you look at our demographics, you know, this is the sweetheart spot for where you'd say, yeah. you know, any any day, every day, all day, I'll be happy to fix this cuff tear. Do you think like a single row would have had uh, potentially different outcomes or were there other associations yeah. you found related to the Yeah, results? I mean, that's I mean, that's the challenge. You know, this is 121 patients is large but you know it's hard to get large enough to be able to answer those questions so we had to make some decisions up front about you know how are we going to standardize this to where some of those things aren't going to impact the healing so we chose the double row technique as the sort of standard way to look at these patients but that's a great question and I think those are kind of future questions as you understand this phenomenon and we understand quality of healing better you can better answer questions like that you know does double row versus single row matter? Do, do biologic applications matter? How does it affect this concept of quality of tendon healing that we think this failure of continuity better illustrates? One question I've had for you about is about this concept of tension. So there's definitely some literature to suggest that repairs that are performed under higher tension are less like, more likely to have that traditional failure, the Sagaya yeah. 4-5. So there's been some move in literature to say we should perform our repairs under less tension. That's certainly the single remedialized repair, that movement. What, you know, it almost seems as though the body is creating that situation for itself. Is this leading, you know, what, what do you think is the future there? Are we going to be repairing the tears under less tension to create this? Or is it the opposite? Should we be over-tensioning them, anticipating that they'll be stretching out? I don't know that I know the answer to that question. I can tell you that in this cohort, these were not difficult repairs. I mean, these were not a struggle to say, I can get a double row repair. A lot of these were, you know, double row equivalent, suture bridge technique. So uh, I typically did the traditional double row, but a fair number of suture bridges. Um, so again, these are, the, these are the kind of cases where you say, boy, if this doesn't heal, I don't know what is not going to heal. Um, the other thing to keep in mind for this study, I mean, this was a huge team of people. I mean, Kathy Derwin was the, you know, the captain of the ship for this, but there were six surgeons that were rigorously trained. Uh, every surgery was supervised by a study personnel. Every note was taken by somebody in the OR. Every case was videoed. Every case had, you know, documented photographs taken. Every patient had MRs and CTs done with a study person in the imaging room to make sure the arm was positioned correctly. Uh, every patient had strength measurements done by one or two people that were trained. It, it, it was a very rigorous study, and it cost the taxpayer a fair amount of money. I mean, this was a $2.5 million, $3 million study uh, to get this done. Which, you know, is important in the sense of saying, you know, this type of research where you're doing something prospectively with a very clear question and a very rigorous methodology costs real money. I mean, it can't be done sort of on, you know, nickels and dimes because you, don't, you need the level of personnel. It's probably 12 to 15 people 
involved in this study over a five-year period of time, actually six-year period of time. Well, it sounds like a huge effort and huge congratulations to you guys for getting it done. I mean, I think it's an enormous contribution to understanding of how cuff healing work is really groundbreaking work, and I think it's going to have ripple effects for a long time. And I hope so. Our, our future <laughs> understanding for yeah. how we should be altering our indications and yeah. likely yeah. surgical technique. Anything else you'd like to share with us? Yeah, you know, I, I think if you say what was the motivation to do this study, we thought that the that if we had a better quantitative measure of healing, that we would have a better tool to measure the value of scaffolds and biologics and other things. Because if you measure healing that by a dichotomous variable, either a hole in the cuff or not a hole in the cuff, it's sometimes hard to pick up subtle differences that are clinically relevant uh, for any biologic or graph. So the, th the original thought was that if we really understood cuff healing in a quantitative way, that we would have a better tool to study some of the biologics in a, in a more randomized clinical trial. It's so humbling to hear you say that I've done these 20 years of research to develop a tool so that I could begin on the research. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's that's amazing. the, that, that's the hard amazing. part in terms of convincing NIH to invest the money. Right. I mean, right. It's, that's, that, that is, you know, if you look at how much money by NIH is given for musculoskeletal research in general, it's low. And if you say, well, how much money do they give for clinically relevant human-based research, it's even less than that. So it is, it is, it's a tough, it's an uphill battle. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, to add to that, it, as we've talked about, you have these things that we think are meaningful with regards to healing, but may not truly manifest themselves until five yeah. years, 10 years down the line, right. and could be true disease-modifying effects, but to do that long-term is challenging because of the issues Joe brings up with funding and being able to have a team together for that long to support that long-term follow-up. We're, we're hopeful that we find a difference at five years with patient-reported outcomes, uh, particularly in this Sugaya 1, 2, and 3 group, that, that getting tendons not to pull away from the bone is meaningful. Uh, because that would open up the whole arena to say, how do we get tendons to heal better and faster, which opens up the arena for biologics. justifiable studies for the biologics. Well, we'll look forward to um, what the future will hold for this research. And wanted to th thank you for coming on and sharing it with us. Um, it's been great to have you on. I appreciate your guys' time. That's about all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you much to our guests. For all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time.